0: Welcome to the Supported Living Property Podcast with your host, me, Lisa Brown. The place to learn about supported living property investing. In this episode, Christine Janaway explains when you should use an assured shorthold tenancy, which is known as an AST, and when you should use a lease. She shares some things you should discuss when drawing up heads of terms for a lease and also gives advice about negotiating to get the best possible lease terms for you. Hi, Christine. It's great to have you here today. Thank you for joining me. How are you?
1: I'm fine. Thanks, Lisa. Really well. Thanks for for inviting me.
0: Good. It's great to have you here. For those who don't know you, Christine, do you want to introduce yourself and tell people a bit about you?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure it's um I'll keep it as short as I can because I've had a long career because I'm so old now (laughs) um okay so my name first Christine Jannaway. I'm a fellow of the RICS that's the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors um I qualified way back in the olden days of 1989 (laughs) gosh that's so long ago um and all my career basically I've dealt with leases I mean some surveyors do like resi valuation mortgage valuations all that type of thing or they might be go on to be building surveyors, quantity surveyors, or whatever, but I, my career has always really been about leases, either for operators or occupiers. Um, I've been head of property at two national change of state agencies, I've been a partner in charge of a fee earning commercial surveying team, I've done structured finance, I've done development, I've done all sorts of random, actually, <laughs> bits and pieces. Um, yeah some some people might say I've got very broad experience other people might say I just duck and dive around from one thing to another i prefer uh, a former, obviously I
0: think <laughs> definitely broad experience
1: definitely. <laughs> so um uh, what I'm doing at the moment is I um I own a lettings and management agency in the North Cotswolds we do holiday lets and um normal lets. so a bit of a plug for my business there but um as an investor i 've moved more and more over to the social housing sort of focus for lots of reasons which we don 't have time to go into now, but um, yeah, that is primarily my focus now i 've still got some vitalettes and commercial and stuff, but the thing i 'm really focusing on is social housing supported care, living that type of that type of thing. perfect
0: that 's great um, and I think the, the main question I wanted to ask you was about um why a lease and not an ast commonly okay. when i'm talking to people, well yeah are... yeah they, they kind yeah. of think oh i could just use i can just use a, an ast i don't need a lease um and so yeah that's what i wanted to kind of pick your brains and go over with you
1: today yeah sure no problem at all okay so an ast is a very specific thing housing like 1988 thing it is a right of to occupy by an individual or group of individuals family or whatever um, for and they actually need to be in occupation and they are individuals themselves so mr and mrs fred blogs and their 16 children so they, <laughs> they are the people who are going to occupy um, and it's governed by over 170 pieces of legislation that particular like that relationship. And you, you can grant uh, an AST very easily, verbally. It doesn't even have to be in writing. There are certain clauses which will automatically be read into even a verbal agreement. Um, but the one time you cannot, well, there's two, there's two occasions you can't use an AST. First is if you are a living landlord. So if it's a lodger, it's your own home, you have a lodger. You can't use an AST. Then you need a lodger agreement for your own security, as much as anything else, because they won't be protected by the ATA Act. Um, and the other instance is where you are not letting either you're not letting to an individual; it's a company or some sort of organisation, or you can be letting to an individual, but they're not actually going to be living in it themselves. So you could take um, in the supported living arena a five-bed house. You could grant tenancy, let's call it that for the moment, so a tenancy can be an AST or it can be a commercial lease, so you can grant a tenancy to Fred Bloggs, to use that name, but unless he's in occupation himself, it is not an AST. If other people are going to occupy, Mr Bloggs will be granting the ASTs, maybe, to those individuals in occupation, but he himself cannot have an AST. Now, if you Actually, have already signed an AST with him. Um, the normal legal um, processes come into play. If there's ever any dispute, the judge will look at that document and say, Well, I know he says it's an AST, but it's not an AST, it's a lease, commercial lease effectively, because they're not in occupation. And similarly, if you were to grant a, a lease to an individual who would then live in that property themselves and there was any dispute, the judge would look at that and say, I don't care what it says on this, this is an AST and that's how I'm going to treat it. So you can have a piece of paper that says all sorts of things and people sometimes use licences, don't they, particularly Mm -hmm. for agents and the document is called a licence and it's got all sorts of terms in about this and and the other, completely irrelevant legally, that is an AST and the norm, all the normal protections apply. So oh, that's wow. the basic difference, which I hope is reasonably clear.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So even if you've granted the wrong thing, for the it courts the would treat thing. it,
1: yeah. Yeah, absolutely, as what it actually is, not as what it calls itself, you know. If it's a, the, the old sort of chestnut, you know, if it waddles and quacks, then it's a duck. It doesn't matter if it goes, oh, I'm a swamp, it's still a duck. <laughs> <laughs> so from
0: most of our um property investors would be letting properties to organizations, whether that's a care company, a charity, a housing association. So that would mean they have to, it's a lease that they need to be it's using. It's a lease,
1: yeah. And I know that various organizations um supply documents that they call company let agreements. Mm. And um, you know, for some for some circumstances, they're probably adequate. But for me, they just don't have the breadth and depth of the detail that's really needed to manage your relationship with the, the organisation who is going to be your tenant and how they're then going to deal with their relationship with the people actually in occupation. For me, a company-like agreement is... A little bit thin. I mean I'm used to commercial leases, okay, with institutions and all sorts. So you know a typical commercial lease that I might deal with daily might be 50, 60 pages long. They don't need to be that complicated. <laughs> but they they do need to um, they do need to be detailed enough so that all parties know exactly what they're dealing with. Um, and in particular if you want to exclude them from security of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954, um, they really need to be a lease. And you need to go through the correct process to make sure they are excluded. And there's different processes depending on how long a gap between agreeing the words and actually signing it, 14 day gap. Sometimes you have to serve a notice, sometimes you can just put it in the document itself. It used to be that you had to go to court, and get the court to rubber stamp it being outside the act, but I think um, whoever amended that legislation must have realised actually most people are grown ups when they're entering into these documents and they they should jolly well know you know what they're letting themselves in for because there are, if a, if a lease is excluded from the 54 Act there are only a couple of circumstances in which the landlord can refuse a new lease when that one expires but that's okay. a of detail we don't want to get in here today um yeah so that's ba- that's the basic i i would always want to see a lease with sufficient amount of detail in it um rather than just a, a three-page company letter agreement that you've downloaded off the internet from somewhere
0: because it's a, a serious document isn't it and i think that's the it thing sometimes a serious people
1: document. It sometimes it is, people
0: people don't treat them with the kind of gravitas that they need. I mean, they scare me, quite frankly. I would always get them read by someone who knows what they're talking about because oh, yeah, I, I wouldn't yeah. pretend to. So, you know, um, and and who would you be thinking should be giving you that advice? When You know, who should you? Um,
1: well, various people can prepare what um, a, a draft document. Uh, I mean, I do them, for example. Mm. And they are normally if you were going to take a, a lease on a, on a premises that's not an AST. So that would normally be a shop, an office, you know, a factory, but can equally be a house if it's for these purposes. Um, you would have a, someone acting for you and they would draw up a heads of terms, which covers all the pertinent uh, terms that you've agreed. And then you would hand that to your solicitor and say, can you turn this into a lease, please? Um, but it is perfectly possible to have a draft template lease, which covers all the relevant points and then you insert the detail. So, it, so if you like, it's sort of a glorified heads up terms, vastly expanded. Um, so the terms you're looking to put in there, which are really important. Now, first of all, who you are and who the tenant is, very important. Um, and when you've got a guarantor, because they need to be what's called a surety on the lease. And they will have certain obligations if the tenant fails to do X, Y, or Z. <clears throat> then you're going to have how long the lease is for and then you're going to have how much rent they're going to pay on day one or if there's a rent-free period on day whenever the rent starts whether there's any other contributions they have to make to if it's a short lease three or five years you wouldn't get you shouldn't get anyone signing up to a full repairing lease on that basis there would be responsibilities for the landlord so um whether the tenant contributes to those or not, which is a service charge, effectively. Who pays for the insurance? Is it shared? Is it just landlord? Is it just the tenant? If the rent's going to increase during the... It's called called the the term of the lease. It's really confusing because you see a lease and it's got um, lease terms and then it says term of the lease. You think, well, that's a bit weird. But lease terms are just the clause is in the lease and the term of the lease is the length of the lease so, surveyor speak is <coughs> confusing i don't know if it's deliberate probably actually it always it feels like it. It. <laughs> it's to keep everybody out you see keep it a little closed shop that's what it is um, so whether there's going to be any rent reviews during the term of the lease the, the length of the lease um, if so when are they going to be how are they going to be calculated that by RPI is it going to be a set increase, it's going to relate to the local housing allowance or any sort of other grant income or the, the council, maybe if they're sponsoring the Occupy and things like that. Then you're going to have, <clears throat> think the repairing covenants. And in, a, in a, the shorter the lease, the more important these are um, because every term of a lease directly impacts on the amount of rent you're going to get as a landlord. So if you make the lease very onerous, you're effectively reducing the market demand for that property, for that lease. And therefore, the price will be depressed, like it's just simple economics. So if you make things very onerous, the repairing covenant, the user clause, what they can use the premises for, severely restricting the types of occupiers they can have in there. Um, If you add in things like vacant possession yielding up clauses, which is a whole other can of worms, then you're going to suppress the amount of rent that you're going to receive on that lease. Because whereas you may have a potential pool of 30 possible organisations wanting to take that property from you, if you make it too onerous, you might just be down to one or two. So. As with any other. Um, you know any other um, commercial arrangement the smaller your target pool of buyers the less the value basically that's how it works. I suppose
0: most of of these transactions we're talking about for the people listening to this might be residential properties or or small blocks of flats so there, there would normally be residential ASTs on them so therefore they're then altering them from their point of view to put a commercial lease on them that that's where the, you know, so the so they may want to restrict the kind of tenants that are, are in the property as well. And uh,
1: the, whoever they're, if they've got mortgage, whoever their lender is, may want to restrict. I know some mortgage lenders, because uh, obviously you've got to also make sure you've got the right type of mortgage in place. That's yeah. another big, big thing. Yeah, we, and, we've had uh,
0: several sessions on that one. Yeah. That's so important. <laughs> yeah.
1: And um, the lender themselves, you know, pick your lender according to your occupier, because some of them I know don't like asylum seekers, for example, some of them won't take homeless, the transitioning into permanent accommodation, and um, they will have their own um, rules based on their own risk underwriting. Mm.
0: Um,
1: so it, it's a bit of a circle because you've got your property and then you've got your potential um, leaseholder which be the organization and their clients and then you've got your lender and you've got to try and make sure that they all dovetail into each other and there's no clashes and difficulties absolutely I mean, the last thing you want to do is for someone to to notify your lender that you've got asylum seekers in your property and it's actually against the terms of your mortgage because they will not hesitate to call it in
0: yeah and
1: then you're scrabbling for a new for a new lender nightmare
0: yeah absolutely it's it's a horrible situation to be in the other thing that comes up frequently in in those discussions about heads of terms is break clauses isn't it that's always something that people yeah yeah
1: yeah absolutely so it's entirely a negotiated um, thing a break clause although having said that if you um if you've got a reasonable sized property say you've got a block of 20 flats and a fairly sizable operator wants to take a lease of them they've probably got their own standard lease. And the reason for that is that um, they they have to asset management these these properties in-house. And they'll want to know that every single one of their leases is identical. So, And they may have a policy, in fact, by having a break clause at year three, five, Mm. whatever, whatever it is. And they'll probably also want to have what they call an Armageddon clause in there which is exactly like it sounds if armageddon happens they're going to tear the lease up so if something it'll be set out in the lease what the circumstances are but say they they lose their regulatory status or they lose the care quality commission you know stamp of approval or the local authority stops um funding their clients and they literally cannot carry on i mean it's unlikely but it does happen Mm -hmm. um then they'll be able to just say okay we're breaking the lease right now so it won't be at a normal break date it'll just be maybe on a month's notice the lease is gone that's you would hope that they'd come and talk to you before then um because you've still got people living in there the fact they've stepped away but they're not taking the people with them necessarily um they might still be living there now if the local authority is still sponsoring them or nominate you have a nomination agreement then they might assist, they should assist in finding a new operator and therefore someone else to take the lease. Um, and that's why it's important to have a surety because one of the obligations will be that if the leaseholder, care homes number one or whatever, oh, I hope that's not a real company, you know, but you know what I mean? Care homes, Mr. Blogs, number one. Um, uh, exercises, um, the Armageddon clause, you would you would want the surety to undertake to pick up a lease in their stead. Mm. That's that's how I would want to see it. Whether they would be willing to do that is a different matter. These are all negotiated terms. There are there are very few statutory terms in a commercial lease. Uh, Basically you've got the right the, the tenant has the right to quiet enjoyment just in the way they do in a residential property, you know, as on an AST. In other words, the landlord can't constantly harass them and come in without permission and all that sort of thing. And uh, they have the right to support and protection from the remainder of the building or the landlord's broader estate. So if they're just taking one, uh, say six flats out of a block of 12, they'll have the right of support and protection from the rest of the building. And, um, you know, fundamentally that's it. I mean, you can create a commercial lease verbally, just the same as you can create an AST, but you wouldn't really want to do that because um, the basic terms are actually not very extensive. You could probably put them on one side of A4. Um, And if you you allow a company to take occupation, give them the keys, give them possession, because don't forget, as a landlord, no matter what type of tenancy you grant, AST, company-led, commercial lease, you are giving up your right to to enter or occupy that property completely. Hmm. Completely. Hmm. So they have total control of that property. Um, so you, you don't really want that just to be left to the whim of a judge to decide who can do what, when, and how. Hmm. You want it to be written down in a document.
0: Yeah. So it's it's really important to get it right, isn't it? And get it written. It down, is right? because
1: In the same way with any other contractual arrangement, um, the more detail the better. Because if there's a dispute, um, you can go to the lease and you can say, Well, okay, we we disagree about this. This is what it says in the lease. So this is what we have to do. Mm. Easy. Whereas if it doesn't say it in the lease, then you're going, Well, I think this. And I go, Well, I think that. And uh, these things do end up in court. Yeah. They do. And you don't want to go to court on a commercial lease because it's not like the first tier property tribunal where the tribunal chairman's, you know, practically making you a cup of tea. And, you know, it's very informal. It's a formal process. Mm. Um, and you're probably going to need a barrister with you. I mean, this is we're talking expensive.
0: Yeah. yeah it's expensive, so, so it's, it's, you need to get it right at the beginning, basically. Is, the
1: better the lease at the beginning, the easier the relationship mm. With, you, with the with the owner and the um, operator, you know, company on the lease. Yeah, absolutely, definitely.
0: And when you're negotiating those heads of terms and coming up with those heads of terms, what advice would you have, Christine?
1: Well, it depends whether I'm talking to the operator or the landlord. <laughs> <laughs> so a few tips for both, then perhaps. Okay. All right. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, some of the advice is is the same for both of them. Um, and quite broad, I mean, I've already said, all the terms of the lease will impact on the rent. So the easier you make it as a landlord to increase your potential pool of um, leaseholders, the more income you're likely to generate. Um, and the more restrictive you make it, the less income because you're reducing your market. And for the operators, it is helpful to have the terms as broad as possible even if it means you might pay a little bit more rent because it just means you've got ultimate flexibility in your business. And this is your business, isn't it, as an operator? And you don't want to be hemmed in by lots of um, very intrusive sort of controls and checks and balances that are coming from the landlord. Um, You want to have the right to freely occupy without interference from the landlord the property that you're paying rent for. Um, If I was a tenant, acting for a tenant, I'd want break clauses. I'd want an Armageddon clause. I wouldn't want a guarantor if I could possibly get away with it. Um, I'd want a nice, easy um, exit, either at the break clause or the expiry of the lease, no vacant possession requirement on a break clause. I'd want minimum (laughs) dilapidations liability, etc. I'd want minimum repairing liability. If I was a landlord, I'd want exactly the opposite. So it it is um, a balance. Mm. And, uh, yeah, both parties really are are wanting opposite things. But actually, in reality, where they come together in the middle and um, come to some properly mediated, and that's why most people employ agents to act for (laughs) properly mediated agreement, then it's what they say about um, compromise. Everybody gets something that they want. And the things they're not getting are not the really important things that they're having to give up the most important things they need they're getting and um you know uh, and as I say this is why most people in uh, companies landlords organizations employ agents because they're very experienced in the market and they know what will what can be done and what can't be done and they're very experienced in in commercial leases so um They will tell their client, well, I know you want this, that and the other, but actually you're never going to get that in a million years. So you might as well just forget it. Or that's not legally possible. That's another thing. Um, Often landlords want things that are not legally possible. And I'll use the example of ASTs because it's easy. Um, There's usually a clause in an AST that the tenant can't change the utility provider and can't change the locks, neither of which are legally enforceable at all. Um, The tenant's perfectly free to change their utility provider and perfectly free to change the locks and to not allow the agent in there might be a clause that says the agent's going to come and inspect once every three months and the tenant just says no they're not they're not coming in that's it the only time you can get in a property with an ast um if the tenant won't let you in is with a court order a, you know a comm- <clears throat> commercial's commercial is a little bit different because there'll probably be a clause in there that says the landlord has the right to inspect on reasonable notice, which is usually seen as like 48 hours, or you might be specified as a week. If you've got um, uh, occupiers in there with particular sensitivities, say autistic um, teenagers or, you know, whatever it is, then obviously you want to, as a tenant, you want to make sure that the, the landlord's right to inspect is carefully worded. So it's not going to interfere with the, op- with the operation and the and it's not going to unbalance the atmosphere in the property and all those types of things. Um, but on a commercial lease, there there is normally the right to inspect, which can be enforced. So that's the difference between AFTs. I guess it comes to the
0: landlord um and the and the providers understanding each other and trying to listen to each other and understand kind of the pressures on both of them and and what's restricting each other and trying to kind of come to that compromise
1: I guess which is that doesn't just apply to leases though does it no I guess (laughs) that applies to absolutely everything in life if only people would be would listen to the other side try and understand their position and why they're taking it and then uh, you know understand why compromises need to be made and then look at their own business plan, which is what that should be driving it to see, well, could I make that compromise? Yes, I can. So let's just do it, because it's important to them. So, you know, we're in a relationship now, the landlord and the leaseholder are in a relationship, and, and it's important one for both parties. Um, so, it makes sense to make sure that it's harmonious, you know, in the same way to say, make sure you marry the right person, make sure you get the right tenant, make sure you get the right landlord. Yeah, yeah. it's not quite a marriage, because fine you, some leases last longer than some marriages, so I don't know, but that that's just an aside. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you,
0: Christine, that's great, it's been really good talking to you. We'll put your oh, contact we'll put your contact details in the show notes so people can track you down that way and um thank you all right take care no problem take care thanks
1: lisa thank you lovely to talk to you